Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. On this episode, I interview Mark Livesay of Treeline Pursuits. If you haven't seen him, check him out on social media. You can find him on Instagram. You can find him on YouTube. Really great content that this guy produces. I started following him when I first went on my first elk hunt, and I think maybe he had one video on there. Since then, he's produced a lot more, and he's actually put out a few e-scouting videos. It's a system that he devised when he was a Midwesterner traveling out west every year. He devised this program so he could have a plan, a hunt plan, if you will, to maximize his success with the little time that he got to spend out west. Now that he lives out west, he has his llamas and traipses all over the backcountry in multiple states, and he still uses his plan, never putting boots on the ground. It's a great program that he's devised, and if you want to check it out on YouTube, I suggest you do it now because he's going to take them down and put them in a program that he's devising, uh, kind of like an elk hunting 101 type thing. But it'll be his own own uh, spin on it and probably mostly geared to guys like you and me. So it's uh, something that you can't really talk about without getting into a great detail. So this conversation is pretty long and it's definitely in depth, but there's a lot to be taken away from it. So here it is. All right. So I'm sitting here with Mark Levesay of... Uh, Treeline Pursuits. And Mark, I got to say, I'm looking forward to talking to you. I got a lot of questions for you, and I think you're the guy to answer them. So you want to introduce yourself? 
Luke, it's been great. We I look back in my um, Instagram message how long we've been trying to actually <laughs> do a podcast. I, I you got back, you contacted me in September, I think, of yeah. last year, which I don't know what you were thinking. Uh, trying to get a hold of me <laughs> in September, uh, I was surprised. I actually responded to you in September, which I was kind of looking at the dates, and I I didn't have very many days that I that wasn't packed in in September, but. Uh, uh, hunting elk, but it's been it's been a long time coming. I'm looking forward to it, and I, I really, really, uh, I mentioned to you before. I was on another podcast uh, a day ago, and I really enjoy talking to guys that are from the Midwest and talking Eastern to Western elk hunting. and And uh, I know we're going to talk digital scouting. Anyway, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, I actually, uh, I won't say I creeped on you and saw how. <laughs> where you were at when I contacted you, but I saw that you just wrapped up a hunt and uh, you happened to post something that you were at home. And I was like, Hey man, now's the time to reach out to him. So I kind of struck when the iron was hot there, if, if, uh, if you will on that one, but I got one thing to ask you first before we even get going. Okay. For us Midwesterners, I had to look up the definition and I hear all the Western guys talking, what the hell is a coolie? Oh, coolie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that is a secret word that only people that are from uh, out here know. It's, you know, it's kind of a, you know, and again, it's something I never used. And we don't have coolies, I guess you could call that in Missouri. Um, it's basically a deserty or a arid. And this is uh, this is the Mark Livesey definition. Let's just be honest. Um and I had no idea what they were until I got here. But when I got here, everyone kept talking about, I know I'm going to, oh, I'm going to get hate for saying some of these <laughs> things. Everybody kept talking about hunting mule deer in Montana out in the breaks. They called it the breaks, the Missouri break land, okay. which is basically along the Missouri river. And basically these coolies are just crags and cracks that run up into this country. And they're just really steep, really jagged. They're one right after the other. And, um, you can kind of get into the bottom of them and they'll kind of feed into other ones. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle of, of terrain. It's not like you would envision like in Missouri or even Illinois where you got, you know, these ridges and these, um, these, you know, whatever valleys, or you've got, um, I'm trying to think of the word creek bottoms, whatever, um, ravine, ravines we call yeah. You know, they run out, they kind of run out to a central spot. It's kind of, there's some order to that kind of stuff. But out here in this coolie country, it's like there's no order. Like they run every direction, but these mule deer particular, even elk. I mean, I, it blows my mind <laughs> how many elk are, how many elk are out there. Uh, again, I'm probably going to get hate for that. Um, <laughs> but the mule deer can just thrive in there because they just can be gone. You'll see them. And then they're gone. Like this year, I got even, you know, I've been hunting deer my whole life. And when I came out to Montana, I wasn't all that excited about mule deer at first because I'm like, I mean, I killed almost several, you know, whitetails are, you know, 180-ish. And I'm like, I've killed big whitetails. I don't, I have no interest in this mule deer business. And if, when I went out there for the first time and I started seeing some of the size of some of these things, and I was like, maybe there is something to this whole mule deer hunting thing. And this last year, I was out there in the breaklands, and I had, and we saw a just a tank, and I just got so fixated on this deer. I stayed after him for five, for five days, and I had I had such an awesome shot on him at 400 yards, which I've been really from Missouri. That's like 
I never practiced at 400 yards in Missouri. And, uh, but since I moved out here, I've really dedicated myself to become a better shot for rifle. And, uh, I, I, I thought he was going to come closer. I say, he's coming. He doesn't know we're here. He's, he's got 30 some does with him. I'm like, this is a no brainer. And he got into one of those coolies and was gone. And for five days, we just chased him in these. And, but the, my point is Luke, this, you go by Luke or Lucas. I go by Luke. Yep. Luke is those coolies allow those deer to just become ghosts virtually. So basically it's just this broken terrain that has no sense to it. And when it rains, Luke, Oh, <laughs> it's they're virtually uncrossable. The mud, the sticky, they call it gumbo and with your vehicles. And it's just like you, you're praying for snow because it's any, any ice and any snow would be better than that gumbo. Nice. And, uh, and it's just, it's really rough when it's not frozen and, and it's wet, but it's a great place to hunt and the, the deer thrive in it. But anyway, that's a long winded version, but that's basically it. Okay. That's good. I liked it though. I like that. Okay. So now here, here's where we're going to get into a little bit before we even get into the e-scouting. Cause, uh, so you're living in Missouri, you've been hunting for almost 30 years or whatever, coming up out West and going elk hunting. I've been elk hunting for, I, I thought, you know, it's hard to be for sure when you get as old, when you, Luke, when you're as old as I am and you start trying to think back, everybody always asks me and I always say, it's around 30. Don't, I don't want to be judged on it. It could be 28. It could be 31. Anyway, but I, anyways, but I, <laughs> yeah. but I missed it. Like I said earlier, I missed a couple of years in there, but other than a couple of years, I've hunted at least one hunt, if not two for elk every year for 30 years virtually so i have a lot of experience at failure uh coming from the east i mean guys that come from the east and hunt elk and can be 50 percent or better are badasses that's good yeah i'm telling you badasses <laughs> Um, now the guys out here, they get, if they don't kill an elk, they're mad. I mean, they're, I got a friend of mine that didn't get his elk this year. It's like the end of the world. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> um, but you know, if you're coming from the East, you got 12 days, 10 days, seven days, whatever you got. And you're operating on, you know, kind of that premise and you're 50% successful. You, you have it together in my opinion. And, uh, there's guys do it. A lot of guys do it, but it's not easy to do consistently, uh, doing it the way we used to do it. But, I went one year, the first year, I'm going to tell the story really, really fast. We, we came out in a minivan, a front wheel drive, sliding door minivan. I'm not kidding. My first elk hunt. We drove around. We backpacked into places that was just loaded with cattle. We had no idea there was wild cattle, not wild, but that we didn't even know anything about grazing out west. We just found these good looking spots. We showed up and there's, I mean, literally overrun with cattle and sheep. So then we just get in this van and just drive around. <laughs> we lost every hubcap. I don't know how many flat tires we had. Uh, obviously, we couldn't get to that rough of places. Um, but I actually killed a cow on the first year. And when she came up to me, I shot her at like five yards. And when she came, I didn't even know it was an elk for the first maybe two or three minutes. It <laughs> didn't even it didn't even register because I had never seen an elk in the wild yet. And so I'm sitting there. I was literally sitting on a stump, kind of figuring out what I was going to do because we were just like – we weren't that far from the truck and we were afraid of getting lost. Back in those days, there was no GPS. It was compass only. 
And I was just sitting there in this elk and a, and a small elk, uh, mom and the calf, cow and a calf coming through the woods. And I thought at first it was a horse that got loose. I mean, it literally, I hate to even say it as embarrassing, but I thought, <laughs> well, what? that's weird. And, and then it kind of hit me. I'm like, Oh, that's an elk. <laughs> and she, and she just walked right down the trail, right to me and right in front of me. And I, it was almost too close. I had an old PSE bow that I had never practiced at five yards. I mean, who would have, I mean, and I shot it really high and, but ended up did get her. And, uh, that was my first experience of elk hunting and I was hooked, man. I was hooked, hooked, hooked. And I've been going ever since. Nice. So fast forward now, four yeah. years, four years ago, maybe five, you're at home in Missouri, you're talking to your <laughs> wife and you say, I want to get some llamas. No, no, that's not how, how, how it did went. it go. <laughs> Here's how it went. So we own an event production company back in Missouri. We still do. But at the time I was working seven days a week, probably averaging 80 hours. We were doing hundred plus events around the country. You know, events are always on the weekends. I just was hating life. I wasn't a happy person. I was, her and I weren't getting along. Uh, I missed two seasons of elk hunting, which is like, I mean, for me, it was devastating. Right. And we were, we were on a trip back from Colorado skiing in the car. I remember it like it was yesterday. And my wife turned to me and she says, we're done. She says, when we get back home, you have one year to get your act together, get businesses sold. We, we own some retail stores too. I don't care what you have to do, sell what you got to get our house ready to sell, get We're selling everything and we're moving west. So you can do some things you like and we can be more connected as a family. And that's just always been your dream. And I said, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I didn't really take it that serious. And, uh, cause we've talked like that before. So a couple months, maybe a couple months after that happened, she comes to me, she goes, what have you got done? I'm like, what do you mean? What have I got done? She goes, we're leaving March 18th, one year from when we were in that car. I'm like, and then it finally hit me. I'm like, she's serious. She's really serious. And we'd all planned to go to Colorado all along. Well, then one day I was on my computer and I was doing a bunch of Google search and I just happened to get stuck in Montana. And I'm like, what about, I went back to her. I said, what about Montana? Never been there. Never hunted out there. I'll tell you another story about that in a second. And I'm like, I want to go to Montana. So we flew out here, went to Missoula, fell in love. One year later, we sold everything in a box truck heading to Montana. Nice. So it was, re- it was really my wife. And uh, so, you know, I'm 50 years old at the time, 51 years old. Actually, we moved on my almost, yeah, right on my birthday. That's right. My 50th birthday. And uh, so the first thing I decided to do is get pack animals because I knew I was going to be retired now. Um, or kind of semi-retired. I knew I was going to hunt like crazy for as long as I could, but I also knew the limitations of being 50 and carrying elk out and to hunt solo. I hunt solo about half the time. And mainly because I have time to hunt that other guys don't. That's just basically the bottom line. And I don't know anybody here. I didn't, at the time I didn't know a single person in Montana, not a person. So I looked at horse, looked at all these options, and um, I ran across Bo Beatty with Wilderness Ridge Trail Llamas. I saw him at a at a backcountry hunter's rendezvous, and I was hooked on the llamas after that. I got a chance to see him and kind of interact with him. I got on a waiting list and waited for, I guess, about a year, um, maybe not quite, 
and I ended up buying four ready to go pack mails, which was pretty expensive to go that route. But I needed, I needed immediate, I couldn't buy babies and wait three years to hunt. That was not going to be an option for me. So I bought four super, really super llamas and, uh, I haven't slowed down that department either. I have 18 now, so. (laughs) (laughs) And I got a bunch of, I got a bunch of babies now. I've got females that are pregnant. I've got babies in the works and uh, I've got a couple in training. So anyway, I'm gung ho on llamas now too. (laughs) You got any advice on how I can convince my wife? I live out in the country. I live in a town of 300 people and I'm still out in the country because it's too crowded. So, uh, you got any advice I could tell my wife so I can get some llamas or. <laughs> uh, I, I lost your audio there for a second, but I think I know what you said. <laughs> how do I convince my wife? Yes. I'll, I'll tell you how is, uh, do you have kids? You have kids. I got three little kids on okay, the age all, of five. So here's, here's all you got to do. So when I met Bo, I, my wife wasn't with me. I was at a hunting show okay. and she had never, she'd never seen a llama. So I really didn't tell her I was buying llamas. I, uh, I was going to, but I didn't really get to that point. I already kind of made up the commitment with Bo, but I hadn't really told my wife that yet. So I said, hey, honey, let's pack up the kids. Let's head down to Idaho Falls and let's go to Bo's Llama Ranch and just check them out. I'm thinking about llamas. Okay, sounds like a good family trip out west, you know. And my wife's all about going places out here now. It's all new to us, you know, so that was an easy sell. It only took about 10 minutes with those llamas and the baby llamas and the bombs and the, and it was like a no brainer. And, uh, they're so gentle and I'm not here to sell llamas. I'm just telling you, I've, I've been on some horse trips. I got no problem with horses, goats. I've loved, some of my friends pack with goats, love the goats. Um, but for the most bang for your buck, the easiest to handle while you're hunting, the most stress-free, and the most capable packers for per body weight, I feel if you take all those factors, you know, combined, there's no question in my mind. The llamas are the way to go. Um, you know, for for you, one of the issues you'll have, just like with horses, is bringing them from flatland, 600 feet elevation, to taking them to wherever it takes. To, they're going to acclimate just like you do, even if they're in shape. So as long as you're willing to accept that, I see no reason. But it's a long trip in the trailer form, you know. Um, for a lot of guys, you know, and I'm again, I'm not trying to sell them on one. I do rent llamas. I don't rent very much during hunting season or what you get. So that's because <laughs> you're busy using them, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I am building my herd. I am building my herd, like I mentioned. So I am going to have more and more available for hunting season. For rifle season in Montana, stuff like that, I always have them available. But for archery, it's really a tough, tough thing. But my point is renting llamas is really cost-effective, and um, it's really the way to go uh, if you're coming out. Because the reason about renting, I would never recommend renting horses. And the main reason is because all horses are created – you know, are not created equal. And you can have the best – experience possible or you can have the worst experience possible and but with these llamas they're so easy to train people in two hours my clinics are about two to two and a half hours in two to two and a half hours i train people that have never ever handled a stock animal how to handle the llamas load them trailer them hunt with them how to deal with them at camp staking them out packing the meat out loading the saddles the whole gamut 
and they're ready to go. And I've rented, I don't know how many, how many rentals I've had. I do so many summer trips now, families that want to get into the back country, take their families. And my five-year-old daughter leads her own llamas, handles her own llamas. You'd never do that with a horse. Never, ever do that with a horse. I mean, I shouldn't say that. With a lot of horses, you would never right. do that with them. And they're soft-footed, so if they step on my kids, which they have a bunch of times, it doesn't hurt them. They don't weigh 2,000 pounds like a horse, and they don't kick. Um, my five-year-old goes in the horse trailer with eight llamas. We'll go right in there and crawl under their bellies and get up in there with them, and they're just like totally cool with it. So for me with kids and the way I, I want to hunt too, Luke, I don't want to manage stock. When I pack, when I pack in, I literally stake out my llamas and I've had them staked out for 10 days and I move them around every couple of days to give them access to some new grass, but that's it. Give them water, a little bit of water every day. And most days they don't drink. My llamas tend to drink about one every once every three days. And uh, so they're they're from the camel family, so they just don't consume the water that a, like a horse would or anything like that. So they're just so easy to deal with um, in the backcountry. So I can focus on hunting and not worry about the animals. So anyway, there's my sales pitch on the llama. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, a horse. They call it a hay burner for a reason, right? I mean, yeah. a llama is what average of maybe four and a half pounds of food a day, something in that range. Versus oh, no, a horse, I... it's more than that. No, I feed well. You'd be grass. Yeah, grazing oh, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know what they, but I, you're probably right about that. So what I do is I pack one pound of these what they call llama pellets mm -hmm. per day per llama. That's it. So if I'm gonna be in there ten days, I take ten pounds of pellets in. And main reason I, you don't even really have to do that during archery season because there's usually enough grass. But I have run into trouble. I packed in and had 20 inches of snow in September before. I mean, it, it's happened. I mean, to me several times, unfortunately. You just have to be prepared. And I want my llamas at the top physical, you know, condition. It's like supplements. So the food has got to balance the protein and stuff that the grass can't give them. So you wouldn't have to pack that probably, but I do. But, um, you know, you're, I don't, you don't have to pack hay or none of that stuff. I don't want to say llamas are like goats because they're not, but they do eat a lot of variety of stuff. So yeah. when you stake them out there, as long as there's some good vegetation at all, they're good. They're golden. I stake them out in the trees, Luke. I stake them out in the open. You never could do that with a horse. Like, like if the llamas get tangled up, they just lay down. They just lay there until, until you come and untangle them. They don't fight it. They don't get excited. When bears come into camp, they – they get aggressive and they make this crazy, really loud barking noise, which is awesome. You're like, wakes you up and you're like, you know, something's going on. So it's super nice to have them in grizzly country. Cause it's like your alarm, <laughs> right? you, know, you, you got a built in alarm. Um, I've got one llama that I can bring into my teepee with me and he'll <laughs> lay down, a, he'll lay down right there in the teepee. Keep um, warm. <laughs> and he's kind of my watchdog when I'm solo in grizzly country. <laughs> And uh, they don't miss anything. Llamas are very aware of their surroundings. They don't – I've never had an animal, meaning coyote. I've had coyotes, mountain lions, uh, wolves, bears. I've never had anything get anywhere near camp without them knowing it. That's good. Not even That's near good. it. I mean half the time they're barking and you can't see anything. 
And then 10 minutes later, you'll see, you'll see a bear. We'll see something that they're, that they knew was there the whole time. And uh, so anyway, they're really great for that. And it gives you a peace of mind. It gives me a peace of mind when I'm, especially when I'm solo hunting grizzly country. Right. So hopefully I'm going to make my wife listen to this and uh, yeah. maybe she'll be convinced, right? That's right. If I was you, I would rent llamas for one hunt. Yeah. I would, in your next time out West, make some arrangements, some, see how you like them. And, uh, cause it's really, it's really cost effective for, 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 you know, for that as well. And, uh, it's easy to do and you can handle it and then you can find out, um, you know, kind of what you think of it. So yeah, good. I hope you do. Uh, although I will warn you buying llamas these days, I probably get a message a week, at least one, if not two people try to buy llamas. They're super hard to get right now because the word's out. People have gotten aware yeah. of them partially because of like podcasts like this. And uh, even when I got mine three and a half years ago, I had to pay a lot of money and I had to be on a waiting list. And I had to be willing. I got one from California, one from Colorado, one from Idaho. I mean, they're from – they didn't come from the same place. And, um, and I've gotten to be really good friends with – people that have llamas. So I'm lucky. I usually, I'm not saying I get the first call, but I usually know when there's llamas available and I'm, and I hate to say this to most people, but I'm buying just about every llama that comes available. That's worth buying. Um, if I get a chance to buy a pack ready male that is three or four years old and I'm not paying $5,000 for him, I'm buying them. Uh, most of the time, not every time. But pack, you know, you got to be ready. Most people always ask me what a llama costs. Maybe we should just answer that so your listeners are um, – a three-year-old pack-ready llama, commercial-capable. What I mean by that could carry 80 pounds, a really solid Kakara, you know, 50 – I don't want to say 50-inch, but maybe a 46 to a 48-inch llama at the top of their back. That's kind of how they judge them. It's going to cost you three to $4,000, um, bare minimum. Uh, and they can go up from there. Uh, you just, you're not going to get one that's a, that capable for much less than three. And let, if you do, you got a deal and you better take it. <laughs> um, but, uh, anyway, it's, that's kind of where it stands. It's a certain breed of llamas though, right? It's not your everyday right. llama. It's not your everyday alpaca. Okay. You know, people see alpacas out in the field and they're like, well, there's some llamas or they see on Craigslist, there's free llamas. <laughs> most, which most of the time, those free llamas. Now, back in the day, I've heard stories where Kakara llamas would get on Craigslist, but that doesn't happen much nowadays with the demand. Right. Most of those llamas are got really bad attitude problems, uh, and or they're alpacas. They're long hair wool llamas. So, I mean, people talk about llamas like they're the same, and it's just because people don't understand. But it's no different than dogs, really. I mean, if you're going to take a Chihuahua duck hunting you're probably going to have trouble. You know, if you want a lab or you want a chihuahua, and that's kind of an analogy I use a lot. Now, that's not a real good analogy with uh, alpacas, but the point is that you really want a specifically bred working class llama, and that's what the Kakara llama was bred for. They were specifically bred for packing. They were raised for packing. They have shorter hair. Uh, you still have to trim them like once every couple of years, maybe. Um, 
but they're not like annual wool producing alpacas. Um, the, their backs aren't suede. They're real tall versus the packets are pretty short. There's a lot of characteristics that go into pack llamas, but, but what you really want is, is registered quality bred Kakara, C-C-A-R-A llamas. That's what you're looking for. And those are not, not easy to come by right now. Um, but, but there's more and more, but they are going to become more available because um, there are more guys getting into them and breeding them like me. And, uh, and so it's going to take a little time for them to become the, this whole llama phenomenon. Honestly, Luke is not very, uh, it's pretty recent. Yeah. Uh, I'd say you know, two, two to three years really where yeah, it's taken off. Yeah. They've been around a long time, thousands of years, but in right. the United States here in the U S they really only really gained popularity just like I'll be honest with you, mainly because of Bo at Wilderness Ridge Trail right. Llamas. He almost has single-handedly driven the llama market. And because um, he started renting, more guys started using them, and he went to a few shows, and people saw the sizes of some of his llamas. I mean, he's got some llamas that are 52 inches tall and 400-some pounds. They can pack 120 pounds. I mean, they're serious llamas. And he's using those llamas in his breeding program. And so now, finally, after all these years, some of his hard work is starting to get out into the into the you know llama world, so to speak. I have a couple of them. I'm lucky. I've got a couple of the superstar, at least got the genetics right. of some, some of his superstar. And I've got four females right now that have been – all four have been bred to his superstars. So uh, I'm hoping that in the few years I'm going to have some of the similar offspring that he has. So anyway, that's the llama breakdown. That's the llama (laughs) breakdown. So real quick, because I got to ask, are you utilizing the fiber for anything before we jump into the next? Um, Well, like I said, they don't, you don't really shear them, but I tie a lot of flies with it. Okay. So I love elk hunting. That's kind of my thing. Um, But when I'm not elk hunting, fly fishing is my is my, is my second passion out here. And so, but I do tie a lot of flies with llama hair. Uh, <laughs> it's like a, it's like the secret fiber. Uh, it floats like a cork. Um, but anyway, no, I don't, I do have some people here locally though yeah. that have asked me about it, but I will tell you what I do do. <laughs> I sell a lot of llama poop. Really? Oh, Luke, I, I almost hate to say this, but I sell enough llama poop every year to pay to feed all of my llamas for the whole year. Yeah. No way. I sell a couple thousand dollars worth of llama poop a year. So, because it's so, you know, I don't know if people know this or not. I didn't even know it. This was a byproduct. I had no idea. Somebody contacted me about it. So then I looked it up. It's llamas sterilize their food when they eat it, which is one of the few animals. So what I mean by that is there's no seeds that can survive the digestive tract. So that's one of the problems with like regular manures. You spread it on your garden and you got you got weeds galore. Well, llamas don't do that. And it's it doesn't burn your plants like a lot of other manure. It's got the, the nitrogen composition is um, ideal for gardening. So it doesn't you can dump it right on, it doesn't burn. And by being pelletized, it's kind of a slow release fertilizer. So all these things are like the perfect fertilizer. So all these uh, 
all these granola people in Missoula, I hate to say this, but uh, are the, are all the lampers these, all putting these, it on? Oh, I'm sure he wants some of my llama food, but I'm, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be charging Ryan for it. Trust me. Um, if, he's, if he listens to this podcast, he'll probably laugh. But, you know, I'm actually surprised he hasn't asked me for any llama food yet. Um, I just talked to him the other day. I was, I'm actually, I, you know, I'm, now that you said that, I'm kind of surprised he hasn't asked me. Um, <laughs> But it's guys like Ryan, right. the perfect example, um, that would use it. But anyway, I've got these same customers, Luke, that call nice. me every year that want hundreds of bags of llama poop. It's a lot of poop. So every spring, I go out. Last year, Luke, I shoveled every piece of llama poop I could find on my property. <laughs> and I didn't have enough to service all my customers. That's crazy. So, uh, yeah, it was crazy. And so um, – you know, one great thing about llamas, I don't know if you know this or not, is they poop in the same spot. I they're like not. a cat. Yeah, they're <laughs> like a cat. Now, they don't do it all exactly the same spot. But my point is they'll make a big, big mound and then they'll move on to another spot. So what what I mean by it makes it really easy to, to shovel it up. <laughs> all right. Now, now that we've covered llama poop, we got Wow. <laughs> we got way so, off track, but it was good. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a high demand item, Luke. Right. <laughs> So, all right, let's get into e-scouting here before I get yeah. way off again. <laughs> hey, you're the one asking the questions. I, I did. I did. I got way off track, but that's cool. It was good information, and I'm sure other people will want to know too. But uh, so when you're doing your e-scouting, one of the things you do to kind of figure out where you're going or at least find pieces of property, you've talked about how you cut out circles that are to scale. You do like a three three mile circle and then like a 10 mile circle or an eight mile circle. And you place those on your spots. Can you talk about that a little bit, how you came okay. up with that and where that you, leads to? Well, do you mind if I kind of go back to the beginning a little bit for a few seconds on this? Yeah, please. Okay. So we talked about this before we got on the air, but you know, digital scouting, it doesn't mean the same to every person. And I, I don't know that I realized that when I started down this whole game, and, you know, I don't know there's any elk hunter that I've ever met that doesn't do some form of like get on Google earth or something. So when people hear digital scouting, a lot of people be like, Oh yeah, I do that. Yeah, I, I do that. But I don't know that they really do the way that I'm talking about doing it with the one guy called me your crafts, your arts and crafts way of doing um, digital scouting. Some guy wrote me a message about it. He goes, I, I love your arts and crafts approach to digital scouting. I'm like, Oh, that's an interesting uh, take on that. So, but anyway, when I talk about digital scouting, okay, before we even talk about like how to find elk or what features to look for, I always start with the first thing is the end goal. I think to do it right, the way I like to teach it and the way I present it is you start with the, this is one of the few times that you want to start with your end result and work backwards. Okay. Instead of, you know, everybody's don't jump. Everybody says, don't jump ahead, you know, do your process. I understand all that, but for this purpose and for the practicalities of digital scouting, I believe that you start with the end result. And what I mean by that is your hunt plan. I'm a big, I don't know that you get that a lot from my videos and I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I talk about the hunt plan a lot, but Ultimately, when you complete what I'm proposing that you do when you do your digital scouting, you're going to end up with a hunt plan, a written out 
descriptive guide that covers your hunt, okay? And within that hunt plan, I would like to see guys, girls, whatever, have three to five hunt areas is what I call them. And uh, you'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. So your hunt plan is your master overview of your entire hunting strategy for your elk hunt that you're getting ready to go on, okay? That's your over, that's the mile high view. But within that hunt plan, you have to, well, you don't have to. I think you should have three to five distinctive hunt areas. And when I say hunt areas, this is where people kind of get confused. Everybody thinks, well, I've got this ridge over here. That's one of my hunt areas. I got this drainage over here. That's one of my hunt areas. Or I go across the street onto these coolies over here. That's another hunt area. That's not what I mean. What I mean by hunt areas, I mean separate and distinct locations that you can conduct your entire 7 to 12 day hunt within. So usually when I say a hunt area, I usually mean a relocation. Like you're getting in your truck and you're moving to a physical new location. Because you a hunt area, now that de- it kind of depends where you're at, obviously. If you're in a big, giant wilderness area, you might be able to get away with a couple of areas within the same, you know, proximity. But generally when you have a problem with a hunting area, okay, and you need to change hunting areas, it's not as simple as going across the street. What I mean by that is you get to an area and a road is open that you thought was closed. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go. It just means you're just like, maybe, maybe you're backpack hunting and you pull up and there's just like tons of dudes. You're like, Whoa, Well, you've already got hunt area number two, already worked up, ready to go. You can relocate quickly. But if hunt two is another drainage in that same area, well, that's not going to help you. It's the same number of guys. So I know that's hard to kind of explain, but I think as people work through my program, and I'm going to talk about what I'm going to do with that, and this is something that's developed. I know I'm jumping around here, but when I started recording these videos, it became really clear to me that I wasn't going to be able to do it on YouTube alone. And that's why I've kind of slowed down with produ- with releasing them lately because I'm working on a new project right now. So let's go back. Hunt areas, your master, and then the hunt areas um, are – and another reason to have – I've got all these reasons for having different hunt areas, but I ran into some problems with my own. One year I did a hunt plan. I had four hunt areas. I thought I had it covered. I had all these different, I even have different units. Okay. When I mean hunt areas, my Montana hunt plan might incorporate three different hunting units. Um, not just even, I mean, maybe three or four hour drives apart, but they were all at the same elevation loop. And we got 20 inches of snow in, in, in September. And I was screwed. My hunt plan did not have a radical change of elevation included. I had four areas. They were virtually the same elevation, just different spots. So they all got snow. So I had to go, literally, we had to drive to town, and I had to get where we could get internet, and I had to work up another strategy at a different elevation. We got it done, but we wasted a half a day or a full day of hunting because, at one, I didn't have the maps downloaded, the offline that I needed. I didn't have any points of interest. I had no idea kind of how to go about this area yet. And so we had to redo that. So now, as part of my teaching, I'm always recommending guys have at least one of their hunt areas that's a significant change in elevation. 
one of their five options. If you're hunting, let's say you're hunting at 10,000 feet and you've got three options that are kind of around that 10,000 foot range. I would always recommend one option that you have six or 7,000 feet is kind of what I'm saying. And again, depends on the state. If you're in Arizona, it's probably not as important. If you're in Colorado, it is. If you're in Montana, it is. But so, it, you know, you got to take this with a grain of salt. It's not a, but my point is I learned my lesson that I had invested all these hunt areas and then we got this massive snow and it really, really changed our hunting strategy and I, we had to adapt. Go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry. I was just going to say that. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Um, my hunting partner and I went out to Colorado. We had a few spots in mind, just a generalized spot. We didn't actually like pinpoint any campsites. We didn't pinpoint any actual hunting sites. We just downloaded the maps, had an idea of where we wanted to go, about seven different spots, and they were all within one unit. But within that unit, we had elevation anywhere between, we'll say 7,000 feet and probably damn near 13,000 feet. And, uh, we didn't, we didn't even have any plans. We didn't have any access, anything, you know what I mean? We, we had some spots that were like, yeah, that, that'll be a great spot, that area, but we didn't even know how we were going to get there. Yeah. And, uh, we didn't identify any key features of anything. So can we talk about how you rule out areas, how you find these areas and what identifying features do you find and what do they look like? Okay, perfect. So now that we've covered the end game, the hunt plan and the hunt areas, we kind of know what those are. And even if you don't know what those are, you'll get that. You'll start to get the hang of that if you start watching some of my stuff coming up. So now what everybody always says, the question I always get is just exactly what you asked. Right. But you, but there's a strategy to this and everybody wants to jump ahead. Where do I find the elk? How do I find places that hold elk? And I'm like, Hold on, guys. It's not that simple. Like, for example, I like north slopes that have 30-degree slopes, and I like them with canyons at the bottom that don't have trails, established trails, and I like benches that are in the 10 to 12% slope that are spaced at least midway to upper part of the ridge. Now, that was a lot right there, but that right. is a – that is a, to me, if I'm archery elk hunting, what I just told you is a prime feature for finding elk. But if there's a trailhead a quarter mile away from that bench, or there's a road that passes by that's easy to walk down the ridge, then that spot probably isn't going to be that good. So in order to get to finding features, what I first like to do is, uh, well, a couple of things, but since you're pushing me to give you this part of it, I'm not. <laughs> um, is you have to define the zones of pressure, I feel. And that's where the arts and craft comes in. So, what I like to do when I pick a unit, so basically I use toprut.com, I use gohunt.com, and I use all the state hunt planners that are available, the online hunt planners. Those are kind of my three tools. I realize go hunt, you have to pay for, and I'm not selling go hunt. I have to pay for my membership just like everybody else. Top Rut is a lot cheaper, but it has things that are different than going. I have them both. I think they're both amazing. Those help me with what I call application season and my hunt strategy and picking the areas that I want to hunt, looking at odds, 
draw odds, looking at harvest stats, looking at numbers of hunters, looking at just the terrain. Do I like to hunt this or do I don't? Um, archery statistics versus gun statistics. When all those things, we don't want to get into that. But first thing you want to do is find places that units, whatever, however your state works, places that you want to hunt elk. <clears throat> Once you've got that, then you can start looking at the zones of pressure. So I feel that elk hunting, and again, a lot of guys are going to buck me on this, but I feel elk hunting is a pressure game. Elk don't like human pressure. Deer, especially white-tailed deer, seem to thrive on it. They become nocturnal. I mean, some of the biggest bucks I've ever killed were in the middle of freaking subdivisions or very close. <laughs> um, and work around people. They just can do it. They work at night, you know, all the things that all the white tail hunters know. But elk, I just have never found elk to be that way. Elk like to be a little more reclusive, um, uh, actually a lot more reclusive. So I feel that elk hunting is an odds game. I want to be really clear on this. Everything that I teach in my digital scouting and all my presentations, everything that we talk about is strictly designed to increase your odds. Now, Luke, I don't want to – is there is – there, guys are going to call and text and say, well, I kill elk where there's a 1,000 hunters all the time. I'm like, absolutely. There are always exceptions. There are always going to be cases where there's an area that has everything that elk want, but, the, but there's tons of access and there's tons of hunters. That's great. Of course, there's going to be places like that. I don't like those places. That's like a Cody Rich thing right there. Where he'll, he'll find where the hunters are, pushing them, and jump down into somewhere right off the road where it's too rugged right. to get in. And it makes sense. but That's right. right. And, I've been, and, you know, it's funny you said it because Cody and I think a lot the same. And I've been on Cody's podcast, I think, two or three times now, two of them at least with digital scouting, because we both believe in some of the same principles. Um, but – Anyway, so what I like to do is take an area, and then I like to establish the zones of pressure. And what I mean by that is every – so what I do, as a nutshell, is I want to find out where the pressure can come from and where it most likely will come from. Um, and how I do that is I, I mark every trailhead, every named established trailhead I mark with a you know very – Usually, I mean, to be honest, I start with a national forest map. I don't even start digital. I start with a national forest map, as you talked about with the little circles. So I will take a red Sharpie and I will circle every trailhead and every dead-end road. Dead-end roads might as well be trailheads. Hunters, they're hunter magnets. So I, cir I circle. Now, that doesn't mean I don't go to dead-ends. That's not true. I go to lots of dead-ends. I just want to make sure I understand what I'm getting into. So I circle every dead-end road. I circle every trailhead, uh, established trailhead, and um, and in my whole area. And just those dots give me an idea. I can start to see a picture. And that's the whole point. When you're doing this zones of pressure exercise, it's designed to be a visual thing. Then that's when I take the next thing is what I do is I cut circles out of cardboard. And I will cut a one-mile circle again what I mean, you know what a one mile is based on the scale, scale of whatever, map. whatever the map is. I do a circle that's equivalent to a one mile. And then I do one that's either two miles or three miles. It kind of depends. I do it both. 
but I will do a two mile or a three mile circle around every dead end, every trailhead. And then I will take the one mile and I will drag it with my pin on each side of the circle. And I will do a perimeter around every open road. So basically, if you did what I just said, you are, you're creating a zone that is one mile from every road and two to three miles from every trailhead. Does that make sense? Yes. And once you actually, and you know, I know that makes sense when you're saying it, but what I'm trying to stress is it's super important to actually do it because you can't process this information. I, I mean, if you can, you're a better person than me, but I have to see it on paper. And I can't tell you how many times I've been blown away when I do this exercise on a national forest map and I've got all these zones and I'm like looking at it and just so it becomes so obvious to me. I'm like, look at this spot right here. I'm looking for any places that don't, that are outside of those zones. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so it's not that far. Now with my llamas, I am looking for a little more remote than maybe you might be with a backpack. So the reason I do these zones the way I'm saying it, this is not necessarily the area that I'm going to hunt. What I'm doing by this is I'm going to eliminate the areas that I'm not going to hunt. Does that make sense? Yep. So by doing these zones, I am not going to focus my attention on these areas that are inside these zones within two to three miles of a trailhead and within one mile of an open road. No matter what the terrain is, this is where Cody and I kind of part ways. Cody likes to find these little hidden gems that, you know, you got to cross a creek or across a river, or you got to go down the super steep draw. I absolutely can that pay off. But again, I want to go back to what I'm saying. I'm trying to increase my odds. Okay. I'm not trying to find exceptions. Okay, Luke, that's a very right. subtle difference. Okay. I'm not looking for exceptions. I'm looking to increase my odds. And I know from 30 years of elk hunting, if I get within one mile of an open road and three miles of a trailhead, my odds for running into elk have gone up. Have they gone up 80%? No. Have they gone up 60? Who knows? All I know is that they're higher than if I hunt those zones that – or within those ranges. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when you're digital scouting, first thing I do is I want to eliminate the places that I'm not going to look at right off the bat. So that's what the first exercise I do is that so that then I can start looking for features. Like I just mentioned that North slope, those creek drainages with no trails, those meadow chains, <coughs> all the other things that we can talk about in a minute. I know where to start looking for those now that I have those zones identified. And, um, and that's kind of how I start out. But before you start that, okay, let's say you do the zones, okay? The first thing you have to do is you have to know your limitations. I, I'm going to talk about this a lot in my upcoming programs. Is This is where a lot of guys make a lot of mistakes. And I see guys that send me – I have guys that send me their topo – uh, screenshots. What do you think of this spot? What do you think? That's all the time. And I like look at them. I'm like, dude, that's like eight miles from the trailhead. How are you? How are you guys on that on September second? Oh, we're we're in good shape. I'm like, yeah. that's great. How are you going to get an elk out at 75 degrees? 
well, yeah, we can all, we're all just going to pitch in. And, you know, and I'm like, okay. <clears throat> but it becomes pretty clear when I start asking some questions that they really sometimes, not everybody, but that sometimes they don't really know what, what's up. And so what I mean by that, and I'm not trying to say you can't hunt eight miles from the truck with a backpack on. Absolutely not saying that. But again, eight miles from the truck in elk country in the mountains at 10,000 plus feet is a serious, serious situation for backpack hunting. Well, that's two plus trips uh, for extraction. It, it, oh, I mean, it, that's it, crazy. It depends on how many guys you got. Right, right. And with your camp and what kind of gear you got. So I'm not trying to say – what I'm just trying to say here is understand your limitations. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to say, okay, I know that I can hunt four miles, for, and I think four miles with a backpack is pretty serious, to be honest, if you're going to really hunt it right. Um, and it's plenty of distance. There's nothing wrong with four miles. It's still outside my zones of pressure. It still meets all the requirements to increase your odds. Would eight miles be better? In most cases, I'd say yes, but sometimes I say no. Sometimes those eight-mile back spots are packed full of wolves. Where, where nobody's hunting them. And, you know, that's what's happened to a lot of places in Montana. The real remote places aren't as good as the closer to the road places because the elk, the wolves have taken over. Now, that's not everywhere. I'm just using an example. So, you know, don't get caught up in the distance. Just get caught up in that, those pressure zones. Um, so understanding your limitations. Don't digital scout places that you technically can't hunt. And it's real easy, Luke, when you're sitting at home and it's January and you got your computer open and you're looking at Google Earth and you're like, oh, man, look at this spot. This is so great. There's got to be elk. It's, it's only eight. We can do that. And maybe, but I can tell you how many times, I, I know you haven't been hunting elk that long, but I can tell you I have pulled up the trailheads plenty of times. And I was like in shock. I was just like, oh, man, this is going to be way rougher than I thought it looked like on on that flat computer screen. So you have to be real. Um, and I, and I know that sounds so obvious, but it's just so overlooked. Um, and the other thing, so that's one. And the next thing before you can really, you really have to understand the basic needs of elk. And I know Randy Newberg talks a lot about this and people always laugh. They're like, I know elk, they need food, water, they need this. I'm like, but you got to really understand it. They, and food is not food. Just because it's a meadow doesn't mean it's food that elk want. You know, at certain times of year, elk want forbs and, and they want um, uh, weeds and um, those kind of other times of year they want grasses. And so, and the quality of the moisture and the, you know, there's so many factors that go into elk food and what they like to eat. But starting to really kind of research and understand the basic needs of elk you know, the food, water, security, and bedding. So most people say three, but I say five. I say elk need food and water, obviously. I think they need security. And what I mean by security is more of escape routes, more of a way to remove themselves from uh, harm. If something comes in the area, they need to be able to have a route or a way they can quickly and efficiently get out. And I think elk like tend to like those places that have that option. Bedding 
and by betting, I mean places they want to hang out during the day that is in close proximity to their food and water and for the rut, for the breeding. And then the last one is sanctuary. Sanctuary isn't as important during archery season as it is during like late season rifle when they when the pressure has been on them and they're looking for a place just to stay away. But sanctuaries are still, I think, important for the bigger of the big elk. So if you're targeting mature animals, sanctuary probably is another part of the equation. So every feature, Luke, that I look for really has to relate to one of those five features. So everything that I do and every feature I'm looking for has something to do with those five features. It's not looking for a north slope because just looking for a north slope. It has to relate to those features. And um, and that's where people get confused. You know, when they hear people say, oh, north slopes are the best for archery season for elk. I tend to agree that more than likely the north slope is the coolest. It's got the most shade. It probably holds the most moisture. It might have the most food. I get it. But not all north slopes are created equal. So um, anyway, so we talked about that. So the other thing, you know, my work down my list um, – I think I hope I answered my zones of pressure question for you, but right. yep. you you mentioned something which you told me you didn't mark your camp spots. This is nope. a, I think this is another thing that people make a mistake. Um, I believe that with the quality of the technology we have today, that you can find a camp spot better with Google Earth than you can on foot. When you're on foot and you're at the mercy of what you can see within whatever you can see within your visual plane, I don't think you can see the scope of how it relates to all of your elk features. I don't see how it can relates to your travel corridors. I don't think you can find camps that, that are the best situated for all the things that go into your hunt plan. So what I try to do with all my, all my hunt plans, when I'm breaking down a hunt area, I always put three to five. I know this sounds like a lot, but I put three to five camp locations in. Now I have to look for certain features since I have llamas all the time. I'm looking for water and you know, I'm looking for access to maybe a little more open spot where I can keep my llamas. So I've got different factors, but that's not my main concern. My main concern when I'm setting up a camp spot is that it has quick access to, the, to a high percentage of my features that I've been marking. The next thing it has to have access to, Luke, is the hunt routes. We haven't talked about that, but right. the, the hunt routes that I've planned and my in and out routes, my travel routes. I, I mark two types of routes when I do my scouting. I do hunt routes and I do travel routes. And travel routes are how I move around in the unit area, basically from the trailhead to my camps, etc. And my hunt routes are the routes that I take on my daily hunts. A lot of guys don't think much about this, but here's the problem. Elk are like any other animal. It, I, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but the odds game. You got better odds killing an elk the first few hours of the morning or the last few hours of the day. Now, during the rut, that sometimes goes out the window. The elk are crazy all day. Love, you always hear it. Guys, I know what you're saying, but the odds – don't change. Uh, that's not true. They do change, but you're 
you're always a little better in the morning or a little better in the evening. Just like with any animal that you're hunting. Can you kill them at noon in the middle of the day? Absolutely. I've killed a lot of elk in the middle of the day. They're bugling, put them to bed, call them out of their beds. I get all of that. But when you plan your hunt route, so many guys don't think about how long it's going to take them to get to point A from their camp. And they end up getting there at 10 o'clock in the morning, which is two hours after daylight. Or they end up having to leave because it's too far from their camp. And they don't have a real good path back and they're afraid of the dark uh, or whatever. And they leave at three o'clock in the afternoon to get back to their camp when it could, if they could have stayed till five or six. So what I'm trying to say here is set up your hunt routes and set up your camps so that you could be in your prime features during prime time, during those hours, those first hours of daylight and Honestly, even before daylight, I'm a big fan of, especially during archery, during the rut, I'm a big fan of getting to my places where I want to be two hours before daylight so that those elk, um, one, have a high probability that they're bugling more at night than they are during the daylight. And you can pinpoint it before daylight, <clears throat> but you can't do that if you're five miles away from your hunting spots and your camp is too far and you got to hike in every morning. And another reason for these camps is your fatigue. If your camps are too far away from your spots and you're hiking so far each day to get to your spots, um, you know, your physical fatigue is going to, is going to accumulate on you. So anyway, I know that was a lot about camps, but it's so important. If you're going to base camp with a vehicle, um, it's tougher. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. You're going to have to hike further. You're going to have to be in better shape. You're going to have to leave earlier in the morning. You're going to get back to camp later at night. Food becomes a much bigger issue. Sleep becomes a much bigger issue, especially archery elk when the days are really long. Uh, it becomes a real deal. And backpack hunting is maybe a little bit better um, on that, but it comes with its own problems. Your food is not as good. Your sleeping arrangements is not as good. Your, um, you know, just all those things. And then you've got the whole issues of getting elk out and, and, uh, you know, you got weather and you got, you know, you're not as comfortable as your car camper or whatever you got. So you got to weigh out your physical limitations. You got to figure out where you're going to keep your camps have to be designed around what you're comfortable with. You're going to base camp out of a vehicle. You're going to backpack in, you're going to use llamas, you're gonna, whatever it is. But I hope some of those descriptions of the camps is important. And if you plan your camps with the digital scouting before you go, you're so comfortable, Luke. I can't tell you how good it makes me feel. I get to the trailhead, I'm looking at my Onyx or my guy, and I'm like, it's four miles to our first camp option. We can hit that by three o'clock. We know we've, we're in close proximity, these 12 spots that we want to go to. You just got a sense of, in your mind, you are so confident that you have increased your odds that you've already become a better elk hunter. You already. You haven't even hit the woods yet, but you, in my mind, you are already a better elk hunter because of one really key thing. You, when you're elk hunting, how many days did you get to go on your hunt, Luke, when you guys went? How many days was it? I believe it was uh, eight or ten days. Okay. Eight days, I think. Yeah. It was, so you yeah. hunted, maybe hunted for eight. Uh, we hunted about seven. <laughs> okay. But yeah, yeah. So seven days. You only got seven. That's it. Right. Do you really do you really want to waste any part of those days? And, and efficiency. I mean, I'm I don't know what your hunt was, but I'm guessing with what you described, 
you probably weren't as efficient as you could have been. It was guesswork. There was a lot of guesswork. But there's That's... no reason to have guesswork. No. no. Um, even, and what I'm saying with these techniques, guys, you don't have to be an expert at elk hunting to use these techniques. This is not, this is not rocket science. Um, just a few of the things that I teach will help you find places that generally, again, it's an odds thing, that increase the odds that you're going to find elk in these places. Um, you know, one, I don't know how much time we got, but let me just give you an example of one of the things I teach is trail evaluation. I think this is something that is so overlooked. I can't even tell you how many guys I had long conversations with this. So trail evaluation. And what I mean by that, this is a really – pay attention to this if you're listening. This will make you a better elk hunter right here right now. And I'll probably get hate for this. Um, you can't do this in the field. It's impossible. The download versions that we get with Onyx and Gaia, the offline maps, do not have the resolution that is needed to do this technique. So this is a technique that you have to do at home on a high-speed internet using mainly Google Earth. I found that Google Earth tends to have the highest resolution of the zoomed-in satellite view of all the available tools. Now, that doesn't – you know, again, you got to remember um, Onyx and Gaia, I use both. I'm a big fan of both. I think everybody should have both all the time. But they have one version of satellite – well, Gaia has multiple, but it, it, let's just say they have one version of that picture of that spot. Well, a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of pictures of that spot. And Google Earth has some of those pictures, and they have them in certain dates. And um, But they're not – if you look at the images, how many times have you looked at like OnX and it's snow-covered at the yeah. maximum zoom, Right. And then you'll look on Google Earth at its maximum zoom, same spot, no snow, right? Yeah. Or vice versa, or vice versa. What it doesn't matter. But so my point is, you've got to kind of look at a lot of at a couple of different tools to find the best resolution. So anyway, once you've found your best resolution of an area, which I think is Google Earth, um, then you want to break down that trail. And what I do is. I go to USGS. This is where Gaia comes in. I think Gaia is the best tool for this for online. Or, or if you get the USGS topo layer, the KLM file for Google, I, I know that's complicated, but you can get topographic layers in Google Earth. A lot of people, if you don't know that, um, you can do some Google and figure out how to do that. But you can download a KML files from Earth Topo and a couple, a couple of other places, but Earth Topo is the one I use that you can put into your Google Earth <clears throat> and you can switch the view from topograph, from USGS topographic view to satellite and back and forth. Very valuable tool on Google Earth, very, very valuable. But I will trace every established trail, meaning every trail that's on the USGS topo map, I will trace in Google Earth. And then I will pull up Google Earth and I will study every place it crosses a meadow, every place it crosses an opening. I want to see if I can see that trail. If I can see that trail looks like a freaking highway, then I know that trail has been used a lot. It gets a lot of use. If I can't even find the trail on any meadow, I'm liking that trail already. 
Because, again, it's an odds game. Does that mean you're not going to kill elk on a trail that's heavily used? No, it does not mean that. But it means that I'd rather go on that trail that maybe is not used as much. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I color code those trails. So I trace all these trails in my Onyx or my Gaia, and I trace them in red or blue. Red is heavy use. Blue is light. Use whatever you want. doesn't matter. But when I get into the field and I've got all this done ahead of time, Luke, I am so comfortable navigating around. I'm like, oh, I'm going to take this trail up. It's not been, I, when I looked at it on Google Earth, it didn't look like it was used that much. And I've got notes in my hunt plan. Remember, I mentioned a written hunt plan. I've got notes of all of this. Um, but that trail evaluation, I look at every trail like that. I look at trail heads like that. I study the trail heads in the highest resolution. I look at how big is the parking lot. I can't tell you how many times I pulled up a trailhead. It looks like a freaking Walmart parking lot. <laughs> it's it's huge, and the view I'm looking at might be September 15th. You know, in Google Earth, everybody knows you can look at the date of the view you're looking at. <clears throat> if you happen to be looking one that says September 15th and there's 45 cars sitting there, you're like, whoa, that trailhead gets some use. That doesn't mean I'm not going. That just means I know that it what I'm getting into. Other trailheads I've looked at, I couldn't even find where the people have been parking in the years past. It just looked like the road ended. I love those kind of trailheads. Yeah. Uh, now, that tells me a couple things. That also tells me it may be a bitch to get to that spot. Right. It tells me the roads might be crap, and I'm taking a llama trailer. That's important to me. So anyway, I think you're starting to see that that's an important tool. It's only one. Of the list, I got a list of 20 things I look at. Trail evaluation is only one, Luke, but it's an important one. And if you do it just like those zones of pressure, I'm, I'm almost guaranteeing you, if you don't listen to a single thing I'm telling you, if you do the zones of pressure and you research your camps and you evaluate the trail usage, like I just said, you're miles ahead. No matter what else you do, those three things, you are way ahead of the curve. You've got an idea where the pressure's coming from. You've got an idea of the use of those trails, which is, which it, again, it's going to start making sense to you when you have all these trail heads marked and you got the pressure marked, you got the zones of pressure, and then you mark these trails and you got the red ones. The red ones are going to lead right to these trail heads. And then all of a sudden, these other ones are going to be blue. And it's going to start being real clear to you if you were an elk, where would you want to be? If you had food, water, security, and you could avoid the zones of pressure, that's your golden zone. Does that make sense? Yeah. You've got, you've got all your needs met, and you've, you've kind of removed yourself from this pressure and these high-use trails. So um, anyway. Right. But so can we talk about – so you, once you identify those zones of pressure and then you're looking at – your features for like transitional features of yeah. terrain and things like that, or uh, where you find your saddles and benches, how are you identifying? What is the food source or, or what potential food source look like when you're identifying it on a map before you actually get their boots on the ground? Okay. So just food source, let's just focus on that. So meadows, you know, obviously elk are more meadow or open area driven than a lot of other deer don't, they can live without that. Um, lots of other animals. But elk, they're grazers. Let's just be honest. Um, now, that doesn't mean that elk don't live in the dark timber. 
and feed in the dark timber and hardly ever hit a meadow. Like in right. northern Idaho, man, you can, you'd be hard-pressed to find a meadow. <laughs> um, but, but there's elk there because there's enough food and it's real wet. It's real moisture. So there's a lot of food sources in the timber. Um, but let's just talk in general terms. When you're looking for meadows, I've got some meadow rules that I live by. I do not hunt large meadows or significant meadows, meaning meadows that you could see on topographic and satellite views. I do not hunt them if they're within two to three miles of, a, of a, one of those access points. Do not hunt them under any circumstances. Now, if I'm just running out of options and, and I might run over there and check it out. But again, does that mean there's not out there? No, it does not. But it's an odds game. I found that within two miles of a, of a trailhead, those meadows are hunter magnets. Every hunter has seen that meadow. Every hunter has hiked to that meadow, especially meadows that have trails running to them. If there is an established trail that runs from the trailhead to that meadow, I absolutely check that one off the list. Okay. Say it's three or say it's four miles from the trailhead. Four miles. That's a different story. But there's a trail that runs through the middle of the meadow. I still don't like it. And it's of, got a lake there too. I don't like that <laughs> Small either. Small lake. Okay. Um, now that's not true because recreational spots I've had good luck in because hunters stay away, shy away from those, you know, and, and hikers are habitual. Hikers very rarely get off the trail. Hikers will hike into that lake, fish all day and hang out and camp, make a bunch of noise, swim, whatever they're doing and hike back out. Okay. That leaves a lot of room for those elk to be around there. Right. I've, but you, but you got to remove yourself from that trail. And, and that's hard for a lot of hunters to do. I, I've got a whole, I've got a whole diatribe on trail hunting, but so meadows that have trails running to them from a trailhead that are within two to three miles, I typically don't like at all. If they're a little further than that, I might have them on my list. Um, but if it's a large meadow, Okay, let's give you an example. A large meadow four miles from a trailhead that has a trail running to it. Not off the list, but not high on the list. What I'm going to look for is I'm going to say, what leads up to that meadow? I'm going to study that meadow. And what I'm going to look for, Luke, is elk are really comfortable at night. Okay, they're, they're so comfortable feeding at night. I've seen elk go into meadows that just have hunters all over the place and they'll feed in those meadows at night and they're out way before daylight though and hunters see the sign and they see the elk right. scat and they're like oh man there's elk here well they are but they're not there during a time you could kill them so what i will try to do in those kind of situations is i will try to figure out where they're coming from and i will position myself in between okay like significant distance, like miles different. Elk will travel unbelievable distances for food. Now, not maybe not 10 miles, but a couple of miles for an elk is no brainer. So what I'm looking for in a meadow is I'm looking for the side of the meadow that is away from the pressure, where the pressure is coming from. And I'm looking for what I call transitional meadows chains of smaller meadows, sparser timber, you know, anything that's given me an indication that this end of this meadow, this big open meadow kind of starts running up this, this ridge, let's just say, and the timber stays pretty thin for a long way up. 
Well, I found the elk will, will, will transition from their bedding to those inner interspersed timber stands because there's a lot of food in those places. And they'll feed in those and they'll be comfortable in those. And it gets darker and darker. They just continually will move towards those more, quote, pressured areas. This meadow may have tremendous food in it, but it's got pressure around it. So those elk, they're moving towards it during shooting yeah. hours, but they're not anywhere near it during shooting hours. Does that make sense? And, and again, it's just an example. It's not a rule. But what I like is transitional meadows where um, – it's leading up to a bigger meadow. But what I really like is these pocket meadows, what I call them, pocket meadows that do not have trails. They're off the grid. Maybe they're a half mile from established trail. Even a quarter mile sometimes guys won't go to them. Um, and they're just – or what I really like even better, Luke, is if you can identify beetle kill yeah. spots. Now, Colorado, it's not – it's pretty easy because everything's beetle kill. Um but like in Montana, beetle kill is not a big not a big thing here. But beetle kill zones are elk magnets here. But they're hard to pick up on. You can't do it. Again, I know I keep sounding like a broken record, but it can't hardly be done in the field. You need that high resolution Google Earth maximum zoom view to look at that timber to see that brownish looking timber that will give you an indication that's a that there's some beetle kill going on there. What I like is finding beetle kill zones where the trees are still standing because it gives for two reasons. What I, the reason I like those areas is because it provides thermal protection still for the elk. There's some shade in there because the trees are still standing. A, a lot of them are still standing. But, they're, but, they, but they've got no cover. So the sunlight is coming through. So the grass – I was in a spot this year. I studied it on Google Earth. I just looked at it. I said, what is this brown? I turned on every historical topo fire layer I could find. It looked like a small fire area. And then I came to the conclusion, I'm like, this must be a lightning strike that never, that just didn't get started. You know, didn't become a wildfire. But the more I looked at it, it just looked straight. But I'm like, I'm going. So I put it on my hit list. It was one of my features. Had it on my hit list. It was in my area. Went in there. It was an amazing beetle kill. The grass is waist deep. The elk have been destroying this area. It was about a half a mile from the nearest trail. There was nothing running to it. There was a marshy area in there I couldn't even see on Google. So they had water. They had this, oh, they were just tearing this place up. But it was real hard to pick out, even with Google Earth at the highest resolution. But what they basically look like is a brownish looking timber area. Now, once it progresses, like you said, after a few years, the trees will start to fall, and then it's a little easier to pick up. Now, that doesn't mean it's still not good, um, but you know, we haven't gone into fires and timbered areas and yet, but I feel like elk, again, people are going to tell me, oh, I've seen elk out in the middle of the bird. Of course you have, but it's an odd thing. It's always an odd thing. Elk like to have thermal protection, meaning they got thick coats. They don't want the sun just beating on them during the day or even in the after when they're out feeding and stuff. So they love to feed in these areas that have some shade, but is allowing enough sun for the feed. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a sparse enough stand of timber for whatever reason. It could be just a sparse area because it's just the geography. 
It could be a sparse area because of beetle kill. It, it could be a sparse area because of maybe some uh, uh, specific logging techniques. It could be a sparse area because of a fire. Whatever creates those sparse areas, um, the, the food is usually great. And uh, so I, that's, you know, when you're talking about meadows and you were mentioned, I, I, I'm looking for places like that more than I'm looking for big meadows. Sometimes I'll use the historical view on Google Earth. You know how you can use that slider and you can slide back to different time periods? Now, you, you got to be careful about that because the more you slide it back, the resolution gets worse and worse and worse because of the technology. Um, what I mean by that, you know, everybody kind of probably knows this, but the satellites have improved since 1989. So if you're looking at a view in 1989, your view is going to be not very good. But my point is when you're looking at a brown patch and you slide back a couple of notches, you can kind of maybe confirm. It will help you confirm what you're seeing is basically what I'm saying. And if you still can't confirm, pull up on X, look at it in on X, look at it in Gaia, look at it in three or four different resources. And you'll, you can kind of start to uncover the myth of this little spot that you're kind of analyzing. So anyway, that's probably a lot about meadows, but that seems to be another one. You've asked some good questions, but the food in the meadows is a big, um, is a big question. I look for the sparse. I also look for chain meadows. What I mean by that, any meadows that look like they're like little small meadows that are in a chain that look like they're in a, in a, in a drainage of some kind. Like let's say there's a ridge and at the bottom of this ridge, there's this drainage, but there's a chain meadows. There's these little meadows just dispersed down through there. That tells me several things. It tells me that there's probably water in that bottom. The reason it tells me is because trees, a lot of times these trees, especially pines, won't grow in real wet areas. They'll grow around them, you know, and be interspersed, but it causes these chain meadows. So that's a good indication that it could be a marshy, grassy area. I love those kind of spots. So if you can identify like a, a drainage that has interspersed little pocket meadows all down the middle and they're right in the bottom. So anyway, that's, that's about probably the run of the mill for meadows. Do you have any more questions for me? <laughs> so, well, okay, let's put it this way. Say you're looking at a topo map. You yeah. got a bunch of tight lines that go down and it's all kind of, you know, a drainage or a basin type thing where, you know, two high points converge down to a lower point and it's some tight lines there in between. And then all of a sudden you see it's real tight. And then all of a sudden there's an opening. Is that kind of what, what you would be looking for? And then a bunch of those interspersed in there. Um, kind of. So what I'm looking for is, um, that's a good question. You know, sometimes I just assume things, but I shouldn't. So what I'm looking for specifically on this meadow chain that I was, that I was specifically talking about was the actual bottom of a drainage. Um, whatever drain, whatever drain, it could be a small one. When people think of drainages, they think of like this big valley or this big canyon. Well, it's, that's not what I'm talking about here. It could be, but what I'm really talking about is any drainage where those lines come to a V where they're making a V, you know, on the top, you know what I'm saying, right? You've got a, you got a series, you got a series of V's. What that means is you've got an uphill on one side and an uphill on the other side. Basically, when you see a V on a topo map, what that's basically telling you is you're, you're in the, you've got uphill on both sides of that V. 
Is that, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Anywhere you see a V line running, it could be a small drainage loop, it could be a big one, and then you, you see, but you see where the Vs are stretched out, okay? You don't want these to be too tight. If the Vs are, if the contour lines, we're calling them Vs, but if the contour lines are really tight together in a V and there's meadows, they're probably not going to be holding water. It's too steep. It's too steep. It's too steep. And those pocket meadows are probably a result of rockiness and steepness, not because of food. Does that make sense? Yes. That does so make when, sense. When you're, yeah. So when you're looking for, I'm sorry, I didn't make this clear enough, but when you're looking for like this chain metal thing that I'm talking about in the bottom of these, these um, little drainages, you're looking for places that have, you know, significantly spaced contours that, uh, maybe a better way of putting this, the fall of the contour, meaning the steepness of the contour is more gradual, not flat, but more gradual. And when you see that more gradual and you see those meadows right up the middle of the V's with timber all around and you see these openings, these little openings. And then when you zoom in and the ground and you're in like a September or in August and September or even a July date, July is the best month to look. You look in July and you see it's bright green in July. You're like, that area is holding water. Right. Um, because sometimes when you look in September, Luke, honestly, everything looks green. So it's, so it's hard, but if you look in July, my point is by looking in July when it's typically the drier, not always, but let's just, you know, again, just as a rule of thumb, you find these bright green spots that are, that are really stand out in the month of July. Well, they're going to be standouts in the month of September too. It's just going to be hard to see them in, in a September view because more is green. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm looking for these meadow chains that are showing this green halo. I call it a green halo effect. They've got this really bright green little patches, and it's in the bottom of those Vs. So I know that the drainage is draining water in there and that I start making some assumptions that maybe the reasons there's not trees in there is because – it's not because it's too steep because I've already looked at the contour. It's because there's probably too much moisture. That's created some open parks and the elk are going to love those. So I definitely would mark that spot as a, to be investigated. Um, especially if it's a drainage that doesn't have a trail in it. You know, I, I mentioned this a lot. And when I talk, when I evaluate trails, I also evaluate creeks, drainages and draws and ravines, whatever you want to call them. I evaluate all of those too. And how I do it is I'm looking for anything that has trails in it versus not trails in it. If you look at a lot, of the majority of trails that you're going to find are going up a drainage of some kind. That's just kind of the way it works. There's obviously ridge trails and trails that go out on ridges and things like that, you know, high spots. But for the most part, you'll see, you'll pull up to a trailhead, it's in a valley, right? And not all the time, but a lot of time. And you'll see the... the that the drainage runs up, up the mountain, and that trail goes right up the drainage. Nothing wrong with that, but I will look 
if I find places like that, I might use that trail for my travel corridor. But I'm probably not going to hunt up and down that trail. Probably. I'm going to get off that trail and hunt the side drainages that contribute to the major drainage that don't have trails in them that give a little more security for the elk, but also meet all the needs of the elk. I know that's a lot. It's a lot to explain. Sometimes it's hard to explain. I, I know, but I look for those drainages that have wider bottoms. Okay. When you look at the V's and you're looking at the contour lines that we just talked about that run in the drainage, I'm looking for, I'm looking for those drainages that have wider bottoms. So there's, there's, they're not no longer kind of V's. They're kind of a V with a flat bottom. Does that make sense? Um, it shows that they're, they're I, I, I have found that elk, they, they love those drainages that have a, it doesn't have to be much. It can be a, a you know, uh, an eighth of a mile, not even, even less than that of a flat, I don't want to say flat, but I'm going to say flatter spot in the bottom of the drainage. I tend to. I would investigate, but I'm not excited about drainage that have steep sides that come to a point in the bottom of the drainage. And you can figure all this out with using basic contour evaluation. Um, it, you know, it always blows my mind. I mean, i make a little note here, but it always blows my mind how accurate these topographic maps are when you get out there. I don't know how they do it. I mean, these cartographers that do this work. I mean, I mean, it really does blow my mind how accurate these things really are, especially for when they started doing them, like in the 60s and 50s. Um, but anyway, I'm looking for those drainages that have a little wider bottom. I'm looking at those that have interspersed meadows, like just little pocket meadows. And I'm looking for those that don't have established trails in the bottom. And I really love those drainages that have a north slope to them, that they're running east to west. If they're running east to west and they meet all those criteria and they've got a north slope on them with a couple of benches up above at least the halfway point, oh, man, <laughs> that's getting a double star for me. I'm like and, – and they are not in that zone depression that we talked about before. Yeah. If they meet all those criteria, Luke, I'm, those are definite features I'm marking. I think you just hit it there. That's that's kind of what I was looking for when, as you just described it, that described okay. well, and it, what I was getting at. And there and there's a well, there's a and there's dozens of those things that that we could talk about that are just like that example. But here's what I'm going to say, you know, kind of as we wrap this up. If you take the time, if you take the time to mark these kind of spots and these meadows and these drainages that you like that have north slopes and no tra no trails in the bottom, got a little flatter space, mark a burn edge or maybe a little there's a you found this little burn that's got this green ribbon running through it on Google Earth. You're like, oh, I'm telling you, there's elk there. They may be in the middle, but they're gonna be on the edges. You mark all these spots, Luke. And I mean mark them with a PO or with a pen, and then you set back and you're looking at your computer. You've got your zones of pressure on your, you, now I don't usually mark the zones of pressure on, um, on, on X or Gaia. I keep my national forest map open for that. But you've got that setting there. You've got all your screen with all your camps, all, not camps, but all your points yet. 
and it starts making sense to you. I'm telling you, if you take the time to do this, you're like, well, look at this cluster of points over here on this side of the, on this side of my hunt area, I've got 20 places that I've marked. And on this side, I've got three. Well, where are you going to go? Now that doesn't mean these three won't have elk, but you've got 20 over here that look really great for various reasons. They could be drainage, they could be meadows, all the, whatever you're marking. But you'll start to see clusters if you take the time is what I'm trying to get to. Then that's when you start looking for your camps, Luke. I know everybody wants to do certain things, but there's no sense having a camp over here by the two marks when you want to be over here by the 12 marks. So I don't set my camps up until I do all my feature marking because I want to know where I want to be first. Then what I do, kind of last thing I do when I've got all my features marked, I've got my camps figured out where I kind of want to go. Then I put in my hunt routes. And how I do that, Luke, is that takes a lot of time. And what I do is I basically, I look, I trace a route that I'm going to hike to hit the most features I can hit in a day. Let's call it, make a loop. Let's just use for an example. Right. I'm going to mark a hunt route that's a loop. I don't like to do outbacks necessarily, unless I have to. So let's say I, do, I got this loop planned. Okay. So let's say it's a five mile or a four mile little loop that I'm going to hunt. I'm going to hunt that loop. And in the course of that loop, I'm going to call and I'm going to look for elk sign. Let's say it's archery. I'm just looking for elk. So I'm going to hit all these features. Well, there's two reasons I marked that hunt route. One, I don't want it to be on the trail. Okay. If I can, I want it to be off trail. So it's an off trail little loop that I've marked. And I look at the distances to these points. I make sure that I am going to be at a couple of these spots that I think are hot during those prime hours that we just talked about. That means I can calculate when I need to leave camp, what time of the morning. Because I know that in average terrain, I can do two miles an hour. I know that in tough terrain, I can do about one mile an hour. Whatever your physical, you know, you kind of know after you've done it for a while. If you don't know, just plan on it being a mile and a half an hour um, walking speed, maybe two miles an hour max. So you can plan on what time you're going to be at feature A. You know, like I want to be there an hour before daylight. So you got to calculate that. You can't just say, I'm going to get up 30 minutes before daylight and start hiking. I mean, you can, but you're not being efficient. You're not really you're kind of going out there without a plan. You're kind of just rolling out there and just seeing if you can bump into some elk. And now that can happen, but I'd rather have a little bit of a strategy so that when I run into elk on accident, that's even a bonus. Um, so I, I want to be at this meadow that's remote, this little chain meadow. I want to be there an hour before daylight. I want to set up on that ridge. I've got a glassing spot already picked out which we need to talk about that, but I got this glassing spot all picked out. I'm going to get up there or a vantage point, whatever, a calling point, whatever you want to call it. But I want to be there now because I want to hear what's going on. Well, that takes a little math. I got to do a little math. How far is it? What time do I got to leave? I know this sounds like elementary, but so many guys do not take the time to do this. And then all of a sudden i worked my way around. Let's say now I'm two or three miles from camp. Okay. And it gets dark. A lot of guys do not like that. They do not like off-trail travel in the dark. They do not like it. I don't blame them. You can run into all kinds of deadfall. 
you can do, it can be a real problem sometimes. You're navigating with your GPS in the dark and there's no trail. I get it. But if you have your hunt route planned out, Luke, and you've looked at, you've, you've planned this route so you're going through the meadows. Now, you can't see everything from Google Earth, but you can kind of see. You've got the route on your unit. You can follow it right back to camp. It's perfect. But if all you've got is your camp and you don't have a route planned, you're kind of just taking a straight line. You're kind of like, you see your camp and you're kind of looking at it. You're like, okay, it's, i got to head south. And you kind of just work your way back. Nothing wrong with that. But I've just found, for me, it's more efficient. I'm, like, I'm on my route. I've already planned this route. I've looked at the contour. I've looked at topo. I know it's the best route with to for the best elevation. I'm not going to climb or I'm not going to descend, you know, um, uh, I'm gonna, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm going to use the terrain efficiently to get back to camp because I've already mapped out this route. And, man, I can move around the timber so much better like that, Luke, than I can when I just go out there and just wake up in the morning and just say, okay, I'm going to head east and try to find some milk. Nothing wrong with that. Some days that's what we do. But here's the last thing I'm going to leave you with is this hunt plan. If you have it written out and you've got it detailed you've got all your points and you're laying in your tent at night and you haven't seen an elk in five days. You're laying in your tent, you pull out your hunt plan, you're just looking at the text, you're reading all the notes. It gives you a breath of fresh air. It's like, you'll be looking at it. I'm telling you, you'll be looking at it. You're like, oh, I forgot about this spot over here that I looked at. This had potential and we haven't been there yet. And now I've got a plan for the next day. Yeah. But if you don't have this all done ahead of time, you're laying in your chair. How many times have you done this? Like, oh, man, what are we going to do tomorrow? We're, we're like, we've been everywhere around here. You really haven't, but you think you have. And, you, and you're fatigued, Luke. You're tired. You, your nutrition is off a little. You're, you're facing the hunt pressure. Like you're on an eight-day hunt. You're on day six. You're feeling like something's got to happen pretty soon. All these factors, okay? will always, Luke, always lead to bad decisions. They always do. They'll, you'll take shortcuts. You'll like, you'll, you'll get dejected. You'll leave areas too quick. You'll, all these things. But if you haven't written out and you have a good idea, that doesn't mean you can't change it. Doesn't mean you can't go on the fly. Doesn't mean any of that. It just means you've got a strategy that you can always fall back to. And then the best part about it is you spend two or three days in a hunt area and it's just not working out. I've seen so, so many guys that just keep struggling and keep hiking farther from their camp and keep looking for elk that aren't there. And because they do not have another option already planned out, already downloaded to their phone, already in Onyx, already ready to go. They don't want to go to the break their camp back to the truck and move. But if you have it written out and ready to go, you're more likely to be like, okay, let's head out. We haven't seen anything for five, for three days. We're moving. And then you move, but you move efficiently. You hunt the morning. You can move your entire thing during the middle of the day. And by afternoon, you're already in your new spot. You're already hunting. You've got your hunt roots. Everything's ready to go. And you're, you're productive. I can't tell you how many times I've killed an elk in my third hunt area or my second hunt area. Now, this last year, I hit it pretty good. I, I did four I did four separate hunts this year for archery, four separate areas, Idaho uh, and Montana mixed. And we found elk 
on hot area number one in every one. So we didn't have to go to hot area two. But you know what's great this year? Is I have a whole bunch of hot areas that we didn't hunt last year. So you're not wasting your time. You, you, th these are archived. These are spots that you kind of researched. You're ready to go. So next year or the year after or whatever you've got, you know, you always – so spending the time is never a waste, um, at least for me. And let's face it. We, we lived at elk hunt, sitting on a computer in the middle of the winter and having a strategy and going through this. Something, I love to do it. So um, if it's something that you like to do anyway – um, I just feel like if you follow some of these practices that I kind of go through and you're kind of, I don't want to say religious, but you kind of are religious about it, your odds are going to go up. I can almost promise you, um, especially if you can't scout and even scouting. I mean, I live here, Luke. I do not scout areas here. I just don't. I have found that my techniques work. They just work. And I don't need to go in and put boots on the ground. Now, that doesn't mean I wouldn't or don't endorse it. But here's the problem. When you go in in May and June, the elk aren't there that are going to be there in September. Now, could you go into an area and look for old rut sign and look for signs that there's been a lot of rut? Of course you could. That makes a lot of sense. But going into an area and looking for elk in May and June and even July and even August – doesn't mean they're going to be there in September um, and vice versa. You go in the wintertime, you see a bunch of elk, that's, that's sure in hell they're not going to be there in September. So, you know, I don't know. Boots on the ground scouting, uh, I don't know. I don't think that just because you live in the east and you're coming out west, you are missing out by not being able to scout. I know a lot of guys that scout. I know a lot of guys that put cameras up. I, I get all that, and I, they, you know, I, I don't have a problem with any of that. I just don't do it. And one of the main reasons for me is moving out here, Luke. I'm like a kid in a candy store. Um, I've got so much opportunity out here, and I'm 54 years old. I haven't scratched the surface of Montana yet. I haven't even scratched the surface, and I don't like to hunt the same places twice. Everybody gets so freaked out about my buddies that hunt with me like what do you mean what do you mean we're not going to go back there we had elk all over us i'm like no no we're not going back there's a new spot we're going to a new spot because i just love the challenge of going to these new places i hunted this year every spot i hunted i did a test idaho montana rifle everything Every place I had never been to before, they were all brand new places. Never touched, never set foot in them. And I loved every second of it. And uh, I might go back to a place here and there. It doesn't mean I won't. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't. Don't get me wrong. You, the odds, what I just told you, it does not increase your odds. Your odds are better if you go back to places that you've been to that have proven itself and you kind of know the area. There's absolutely... Um, no increasing your odds by that strategy that I'm telling you. I just love it. I love the exploring, the adventure, uh, um, and it's just part of it. So anyway, I hope you guys, I hope your listeners liked it. I've got a lot coming. So, oh, real quick. What I'm doing now with my program is I'm taking it off of YouTube. So if you haven't watched them, you should watch them pretty quick because they're coming off. But I'm developing a educational platform it's going to be a uh a university type i really like what Corey jacobson did with elk 101 the way he was able to lay it all out and put text with it and make it like a course 
And, um, you know, everyone knows you get paid from YouTube videos. So if you monetize them, so it's not like you're doing it for the money. I'm doing it because I can organize it better in a, in a, and my videos are long. You know how, I mean, geez, some of my YouTube, they're long. If I could break them up and make them in chapters and make them a little more where you could know where you left off and more important, if you wanted to revisit, let's say you want to revisit the Meadows section, you could go right to it. So I'm trying to set this new online course up so that it's more uh, structured and it follows a curriculum kind of. And because I've got 14, almost 16 hours of video. And holy cow, Mark. <laughs> oh, so what, what's, yeah. on, what's on YouTube right now is only three hours. So, yeah. well, I mean, look, we've been talking for about two hours here and, uh, yep. there's just so much to this. And, um, I'm just not a guy, if you want summary short version, that's not me and that's okay. If you want that, there's guys that are doing that. Just like my pack video. I don't tell you just what's in my pack. I tell you why it's in my pack, why I use what I use, where I put it in my pack, why I put it where I put it in my pack for ease of get to. I go into this super detail um, because I I personally wanted that detail. I like, I thrive off the detail. So I want to know everything about everything. And that's just my approach. And, it, and if that's not your cup of tea, I totally get it. But I think this university kind of online course setting will let me do it in a little bit more structured and a a more um, presentable way if that makes sense no i i agree with you on that one um mark it's it's one of them things to where like um i've i've watched a lot of videos and actually thought maybe i understood it and that i was doing the right thing and then you do it you and kind of how i told you how we picked our spots and planned it and, you know, thought we were looking at the right features and things like that, but really we didn't know what the heck we're looking at. You know what I mean? It's one of them things that without somebody truly, like you could watch a Randy Newberg video. That's a five minute long video on e-scouting and say you've got six chapters on it, but they're all five minutes long. Are you really getting the full depth of the understanding of it? No. To a guy like Randy, that's been doing it for 20 something years, or even somebody that's been hunting for 10 or 12 years, say they look at it and go, Oh yeah, I never thought of that. That makes sense. But it's one of those things to where a newbie or a first time or second time hunter, just like me, I mean, a flatlander, we don't understand the mountain terrain and the things like that. And it's one of them things where a guy like you, we truly appreciate what you're doing. And I got to say, looking forward to that content coming out. Well, I'm excited. you know, you mentioned Randy and Randy, I've gotten to be friends with him. I, I love what he's doing. And his five minute videos, his little introduction to digital scouting videos is exactly what you said, they're perfect for what they are. And, but I prefer to get into the weeds. I want to know when I talk about drainages, I want to talk 30 minutes about how to, we talked about the V's, you know, but now I know we're trying to have a, a, um, a conversation and that's a hard conversation to have when you're trying to describe a visual component. But when I have the video to show it while I'm doing it, I want to spend 30 minutes at least, breaking down drainages and how they're not created equal. One drainage is not equal. Everybody says, well, hunt the north slopes and hunt the drainages. Lead. Well, yeah, okay. Well, well, what separates a good north slope from a bad north slope? There's north slope. Every mountain has a north slope, for God's sakes. Every mountain has drainages. That doesn't mean there's an elk in every one. Um, and so 
But that's where it falls short. I think that's where a lot of the stuff that's out there, they'll tell you like fires. Yeah, fires are a good place to hunt elk. Well, where in the fire? Right. What time of year? How do the elk enter the fire? How do they exit the fire zones? What side do they prefer to come in on? What features of the, how old the fire has to be? Can you hunt a fire that's one year old? Can you hunt a fire that's five years old? What about a fire that's 12 years old? Those are all questions that nobody's answering. They're just saying, yeah, fires, elk magnets, logging areas. I personally, I hate logging areas. There's roads everywhere. They're like hunter magnets. All these new Rambo freaking electric bikes. <laughs> they're yeah. all over these logged areas. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I'm not, I don't even want to get into it. Well, you got, uh, the, you got the cat road shufflers now. So, yeah. yeah. So, but you know what I mean? Nothing wrong with it. I nothing do. wrong with it. Right. I'm just saying that you got to keep all these things in mind. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not against certain things. That's not the point here, but, um, there's just more to it. And I, the guys that I, Luke, I have guys that message me all the time and says, man, I watched your video that watched it three times. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I'm I like, watched them a couple of times. So I'm like, do you not even have a life at all? I mean, do this an hour and a half. Um, and so I, I recorded those videos and then I went back and watched it myself. And I like, I thought I did a great job. I thought, but it's just, you can't really use them after you watch them once. Luke, that's what I'm saying. They're they're real hard to go back to and find. There's a lot of information in there. And I think when you hear it for the first time, I don't know that it's you get everything with one time. So I want to set up a platform that's a little shorter segments, but there's a lot of them. And that you can basically, if you want to, for lack of a better word, you can drag a timeline, you know, to certain like you can in a class and it, right. it, on these online. So anyway, that's my end goal. I've begun work on it right now. I've started to do screen captures um, of all my stuff. And uh, I've got some good stuff coming out. Got to say, we're looking forward to it. So uh, hopefully this podcast helped everybody. And I think that's a good note probably to wrap her up on. Um, I appreciate you being on and uh, really looking forward to that content because, like I said, guys like me are the ones that really want more detail, more in-depth on those things, and I think it'll be a great thing when it comes out. Well, thank you, Luke, and I, I'll be uh, – you'll be one of my first people I send to test it out before I let it out into the public. So that sounds good, man. I appreciate uh, it. Well, it's been a pleasure meeting you. Good yep. luck with your seasons. And All right, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Talk to you. See you in June, man. Okay, man. See you. All right. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform it is that you're listening to. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Publicly Challenged, and you can also find us at Publicly Challenged Podcast or publiclychallenged.com. So please reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns, or maybe you'd even like to be on the show. And once again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stands Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app 
to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.